0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Neuroscience CME Journal Club. The goal of each journal club is to evaluate the latest evidence in clinical literature and translate that evidence into improvements in the care of patients. CME Outfitters LLC is the accredited provider for this Neuroscience CME continuing education activity. CME Outfitters gratefully acknowledges an independent educational grant from Cephalon Incorporated in support of this CE activity. This activity is titled, Evolving Sleep-Wake Research, Implications for Improved Patient Outcomes, Part 1. Our guest host for today's activity is Dr. Thomas Roth. Dr. Roth has been the director of the Sleep Disorders and Research Center at the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan, since 1978. Dr. Roth also serves as a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Michigan School of Medicine in Ann Arbor. Dr. Roth is on the Speaker's Bureau for Cephalon Incorporated. Sanofi Aventis, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America, Incorporated. Dr. Roth has also received grant support and serves as a consultant for various companies which are disclosed online at neurosciencecme.com. Today's featured author is Dirk John Dyke, Ph.D. Dr. Dyke is Professor of Sleep and Physiology and Director of the Surrey Sleep Research Center in the Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences at the University of Surrey, United Kingdom. His research interests include regulation of sleep and circadian rhythms in humans, the role of sleep, homeostasis, and circadian rhythms in the regulation of waking performance, monitoring of alertness and performance, age-related changes in sleep timing, structure, and quality, and the effects of clock genes, hypnotics, melatonin, and light on sleep structure. Dr. Dyke has disclosed that he receives grant support from Biotechnology and Biological Science Research Council, PlaxoSidKline, H. Lundbeck AS, Merck & Company, Organon International, Philips Lighting, Takeda Pharmaceuticals, the U.S. Air Force Office of Scientific Research, and Wellcome Trust. He serves as a consultant to or is on the advisory boards of Actelion, Cephalon Incorporated, Eli Lilly & Company, GlaxoSmithKline, H. Lundbeck AS, Merck & Company Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, Philips Lighting, Santa Fe Aventus, Takeda Pharmaceuticals, and Wyatt Pharmaceuticals. Disclosures of faculty financial relationships and full biographical profiles can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 394. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. Over the next hour, Dr. Roth and Dr. Dyke will be discussing and taking questions regarding an article in Current Biology titled PER3 Polymorphism Predicts Sleep Structure and Waking Performance. At the end of this CE activity, participants should be able to recognize the relationship between genetics and individual differences in susceptibility to sleep loss and circadian misalignment. To receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's Journal Club.
1: Hello, everybody. I want to welcome you to this Neuroscience CME Journal Club, and my name is Thomas Roth, and I'll be joined today by Professor Dyke who is um, a a well-known sleep researcher who is at um, the University of Surrey in in, in the United Kingdom. And today we're going to discuss the PER-3 polymorphism predicts sleep structure and waking performance. And this is a study which is carried out in Dr. Dyke's laboratory uh, and and really is, is, is in my mind, a critical paper in our understanding of of individual differences in, in their response to sleep and wake systems. Jan, welcome to to, to uh, this Journal Club. And why don't we start off by, by uh, giving us a description of, of what you did and, and what your major findings
2: are. Well, uh, th- thank you, Tom. And it's a pleasure to uh, discuss these findings because I think they will be very helpful, uh, not only in, in understanding individual differences, but also in, in terms of where we go from here with respect to the research in individual differences. I will first give you a little bit of a, um, a, a background. And where we have to start is with a well-known difference between uh, people, and that's the difference in our preferred uh, timing of getting up in the morning or going to sleep. Uh, Some of us are morning types and others are um, evening types. And of course, we all uh, kind of believe that that is related to something in our timing system. Uh, The biological clock um, undoubtedly has something uh, to do with it, but how it actually relates precisely to the mechanisms involved in in sleep wake timing uh, has been uh, somewhat unclear and, and, and this particular example of, of individual differences is is the uh, type of individual differences that we have been um, investigating and it started a couple of um, years ago with simon archer here at the university of surrey together with malcolm von Chans, uh, gave out questionnaires to uh, people and simply asked them uh, about their uh, preference in terms of when would you like to wake up and when do you go to sleep and they used a validated questionnaire the horn osberg um, questionnaire in total uh, in the end they um, you screened 1,500 uh, people. They then took the extremes in terms of preference for either being getting up early in the morning or getting up late in the morning and, and had a look at the uh, genes of these uh, people. They were particularly interested in a, uh, a gene called period 3. And, and period 3 is one of the period genes, and the period genes are well known to be involved in um, Generation circadian rhythms in in both fruit flies as well as in um, rodents, and what they found, and, and this is basically where I started, uh, is that carriers of a, a particular polymorphism, uh, which is a variable number tandem repeat polymorphism, those who had the long repeat were actually more likely to be morning type than those who were homozygous or had two copies of the uh, short repeat, we then said, okay, here we have a genetic basis for an individual difference in a self-reported measure, sleep timing. And, and the big question now is, can we find some physiological correlates um, of, of that self-report and can we link those physiological variables to the um, the genotype? The thing we did was, uh, which was a little bit new at the time, a a prospective study. So we didn't select people on the basis of their uh, preference, uh, but we selected them only on the basis of the um, the genotype. And the rationale was a little bit like, oh yes, there may be an association between a self-reported measure and a particular polymorphism, but it's of course very unlikely that that polymorphism maps in a one to one way to that particular phenotype and and uh, we knew from the data that even though there was this significantly significant uh, statistical association uh, that the genotype wasn't completely predictive so we did this prospective study and and that's the the, the key um paper and in the prospective study uh, we brought those uh, people who were genotyped to the laboratory after we had quantified their habitual sleep-wake patterns. And in the laboratory, we now did all the uh, the, the sleep physiology as well as the circadian uh, physiology, which which means that we did um, polysomnographic uh, measures to look at their baseline sleep, uh, we also measured hormones like for example the hormone melatonin which is a good circadian um, marker and and we also had a look at their waking uh, performance on, on a uh, test battery which in- included several different type of cognitive uh, task and after uh, two baseline nights we actually kept these people awake for approximately 40 hours under constant conditions where they were in, in dim light, were not allowed to get out of bed, etc., etc., and, and that's the standard method to really assess endogenous circadian rhythmicity. And then finally, uh, they had the recovery sleeve. Now, throughout this procedure, uh, they also had to do these uh, performance uh, measurements, as I uh, mentioned. And we, we ran the study, and, and Dr. Antoine Viola uh, was the uh, the lead, and, and he was really the, the, the project leader on this particular uh, study, and he started analyzing the data. And of course, the first hypothesis he tested was actually that there was going to be an association between that polymorphism in that circadian clock gene and measures of circadian rhythmicity, because that's the simplest hypothesis you are an early type uh, because your clock is set to an early time and much to uh, his surprise and and disappointment we didn't find any difference in those um, circadian markers so the timing of the melatonin rhythm was identical in these two extreme uh, genotypes and and we had other circadian markers that also didn't uh, differ he then started to look at the, the sleep variables uh, and this is where actually the first differences um, emerged for example the first thing he observed was that at the beginning of baseline sleep uh, the people who were homozygous for the long repeat the so-called 55s five actually had more slow wave sleep than the what we refer to as the 44s four which is associated with evening types and that was interesting because earlier studies on morning types and evening types in studies where people were only selected on the basis of questionnaires, it actually had been described that the morning types have more slow-wave sleep at the beginning of their sleep recording. During those uh, baseline recordings, he found other differences. Sleep latency was shorter in in the 5.5s compared to the 4.4s. Uh, When he did quantitative analysis of the EEG, not only did he find differences in slow-wave activity, which was in line with the difference in in deep, visually scored slow-wave sleep, uh, but we also observed differences in REM sleep with respect to EEG-alpha activity, and, and, and those differences were actually striking and persisted throughout the sleep um, episode as well as uh, during the uh, sleep episode after the sleep deprivation. Okay, so we we started to become a little bit more enthusiastic about the data and and, uh, we had a closer look then at the waking data. How do these people respond to being awake for approximately um, 40 hours? and it turned out that when you looked at the performance measures that on the, the the normal, during the normal waking days or during the first 16 to 18 hours of wakefulness there weren't actually that many differences between the two genotypes. Differences however emerged when, when people entered the night, entered the biological night and by the time they reached the morning hours, let's say six or eight o'clock in the morning, approximately four hours after the melatonin maximum, differences in performance emerged between the two genotypes. What were these differences? Turned out that the morning types actually found it very difficult to stay awake throughout the night and, and their performance uh, was was really uh, at a much lower level than the performance in those uh, people who were homozygous for the short repeat, the four fours, which was previously associated with being an evening type. So that was a kind of interesting. The next day, so the second day of the sleep deprivation, in a way after the night shift, those differences became um, smaller again. So we have now differences at the level of. Sleep physiology. We had differences at the level of the um, waking uh, performance, and and the next thing we did was actually to look at the the brain waves during wakefulness, and there we also found evidence uh, that there were differences between those two genotypes in the sense that the the five fives had many more signs of of drowsiness, easy EEG signs of drowsiness. In the waking EEG compared to the uh, evening types, so our interpretation of these data at that time uh, was that this particular uh, polymorphism has an impact on sleep-wake regulation in such a way that when you are homozygous for the for the long repeat there appears to be a higher sleep pressure or a faster buildup of sleep pressure during the waking day. And if this uh, happens and you have to enter the biological night, it's very difficult for those homozygous for the long repeat to actually sustain good performance um, during the biological uh, night. And and what it actually implies is that a, a phenotype which at first glance may be considered a circadian phenotype, turns out to be almost like a sleep phenotype, which is most clearly expressed at one particular circadian phase. And I think that if there is one lesson, if you can say that in that way from this particular study, is that our normal attempts to separate the sleep from the circadian uh, system may not always um, apply. So that was our first study, and we published this in, in 2007 in, in Current Biology, and, and the study received uh, quite a bit of attention, and, and, and we were happy with that. Uh, but our next question was, well, can Hello, we... To, to, let me just ask you a couple of questions about sure. that before we go on,
1: because I think, I think that's terrific data. Let me ask you a couple of questions. One... You know, this data clearly shows the, 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 this this incredible individual difference, you know, and I remember reading this paper, and like you said, I think it just has tremendous implications. One, you know, it, it, would it be fair to say that, that this is maybe a conservative estimate? I mean, what you did is you selected people with the short and long allele, but you control for everything else. If you thought about how these people existed in nature, the people with the short alleles and long alleles, you know, wouldn't you think there would be a basal differences in how sleep assuming these people are, you know, they, they, wouldn't you assume there are differences in their functioning? So one group either sleep more, or else if they didn't sleep more, if like the rest of us, a little chronically sleep deprived, they would show greater impairment.
2: Well, and, and I think that that's a, a very important point. We observe these differences under controlled laboratory conditions right uh, and these were robust differences and the question is you know uh, how are th- those differences going to be expressed while people are living in right. their normal environment and these people may be different with respect to to many things they may be different with respect to habitual sleep duration and we got a little bit of evidence um for that these people may also be different with respect to their daytime sleepiness. And in, in a study we did in collaboration with Pierre Macaire and Gilles van der Walle in Liege, they actually found that when you do the abworth uh in the four fours and the five fives, uh they there actually in their sample was a small but statistically significant difference between the four fours and the five fives in and in the predicted direction so that the five fives had higher scores on the adworth than the um, four fours. Now how that relates to how sleepy these people are, if they're going to be shift workers, we of course don't know, but you are correct. We now need to go out there and see what the implications are while living in society.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's absolutely fascinating about these is, is is this suggests that, that, that different people, you know, I mean, this is, in my mind, very significant differences in terms of what people are able to do in society. And the whole idea of screening people for different kinds of functions becomes very, very important. Some individuals may be vulnerable to being shift workers. Other people may not be vulnerable. And then, you know, this gets at the whole idea of shift work as a disorder rather than just a, 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 a an occupational job shift. And I think this is very supportive of that idea. Um, well, so Go ahead. The, the data
2: certainly suggests uh, that those genotypes uh, may be uh, predictive and, and could be used for uh, selection of people for certain jobs. But, of course, we have the uh, Genetic Information Non-Discrimination uh, Act, and, and, indeed, these type of findings raise a, a number of uh, issues. In, in my uh, mind, uh, this kind of knowledge can be used to really help people uh, work in in environments if they have particular uh, genetic uh, makeup. And and one of the things we are currently doing is actually trying to design sleep-wake schedules which could turn a particular genotype behaviorally in another genotype. In other words, have a vulnerable person uh, become a person who is resilient against the effects of sleep loss.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, one, one of the things that I think is really important in this data, you know, I, I know all of your research on slow-wave activity and, 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 you know, quantifying slow-wave sleep. I, one of the things that's really interesting is is the symptoms in slow-wave sleep by day and by night. But one of the things that I find really fascinating you know, is, is, you know, which nobody ever cites from this paper is you got a significant difference in sleep latency at baseline. And I think there, I think weren't the means like eight and 18? Yes. Yeah. Which, which, you know, which by the way, you know, there's data which suggests that the average sleep latency in a normal individual is about 13 minutes, which is, you know, not too far from what you got, but that, that difference, you know, is, is bracketed by, by the two phenotypes, the two genotypes. And I think that's a, you know, I, I'm,
2: at least for me, that's a very important distinction. And that difference in in in, in sleep latency may turn out to be one of the uh, most robust uh, findings in in relation to this particular uh, genotype, because we have seen this in uh, some other, uh, or at least in one other uh, sample. And and I agree with you uh, that sleep latency again indicates that sleep propensity. In that uh individual who is going to be homozygous for the long uh allele is is in indeed much um higher And yeah, it's I mean not we, just slow wave activity
1: so, right I mean if we translate this difference in latency you know let's make believe you did this latency five times, so you know like a multiple c latency test, this difference is one of the biggest differences we've ever seen in terms of any manipulation. I mean, you know, you a know, five-, seven-minute difference in latency, people sort of want to minimize, you know, sort of don't think of it as very important, but it's a huge difference. And and, and more more importantly, it's a very highly statistically significant difference, which means it's very, very stable. I think, you know, this has tremendous
2: implications. And in, in, indeed, in, in, in some of the studies that we are uh, planning, uh, we will, of course, assess... Uh, daytime sleepiness by using the MSLT Mm -hmm. and and see how that sleep propensity Differs between the two genotypes uh, over the 24-hour period
1: In, In that context, you know, were you able to determine any, you know, again I think one of the most important things people have to understand in the study is that you you match these people which you know, in some ways, is too bad, because in your very first papers you described, you just took them as they existed in nature, and and the question, and that's when you found the differences in, in phase preferences. If you and, you know, for example, so if you'd done phase preference in these people, you wouldn't, you know, you, you know, you, you know, you would have controlled for it. You may not have found it, as you as as you see in, in your melatonin onsets. So you, you know, was you know, one of the questions I have is, had you just taken a random sample of of, of the of the long and short allele? you know, and, and put them in a laboratory without matching everything else that you match. Could you have seen a difference in
2: that phase? Well, that that may indeed uh, be the case, or it could have been the case, but I, I think the, the real issue here is that how do you select the people if you simply use a questionnaire and then identify, you know, polymorphisms in, in candidate genes and find an association that basically only... Tells you that this particular gene oh. contributes in one way to the phenotype. It oh. doesn't necessarily. So I, I think going from phenotype to genotype doesn't necessarily imply that if you now only select on the basis of genotype, oh. you get the exact phenotype back.
1: Right. No, I I, I totally agree with you. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the research strategy is exactly the right one. You words you got to. You had to have control of everything and just and then and and look at the genotype and see how that translates. But but I think it also you know I'm just you know raising the question that might might you not be blunting the actual you know differences in behaviors in terms of of the phenotype by
2: simply controlling all other behaviors. Absolutely, and and, and that's that's certainly a. Uh potential, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it a confound, but but that's that's one of the consequences of the way we did the study. I also want to add that in in this particular uh, study with this particular polymorphism, you know, we emphasized the role of the sleep system as a determinant of that circadian phenotype, which is supported by other studies. That's not to say, of course, that changes in, in the biological clock and in the phase of the biological clock, don't also contribute to that particular phenotype. And, and other researchers like Valérie Mongrain working with Marie Dumont in Montreal have, have clearly indicated that some uh, people are morning type because of their sleep system, other people are morning type because of their circadian system. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, that, you know, if you go to the mathematical models these days that are based on you know, interactions between wake and sleep promoting systems, and, and the circadian and homeostatic systems, you can indeed see that theoretically you can be a morning type for many different reasons.
1: Right. I mean, isn't that, you know, I mean, it, you know, w- you know, as, as people listen to this, you know, we always think about, you know, phased lay syndromes in adolescence. I always think of phased lay syndrome in adolescence uh, or, or phase advanced syndromes in elderly as driven two ways. One, they're driven Biologically, by an, a biological phase advance, I also think of them as driven by sleep. You sort of stay asleep. You, you know, you go to sleep later and later and later. You delay your clock, and th- then you're, you're in phase delay. So yeah, I think you can become a biological phase delay, and you know, and, and then you can
2: become a phase delay simply
1: by changing your sleep
2: habits or, or your timing of sleep. And I think the the example of, of the delayed sleep in adolescent adolescents is is a wonderful example because. Obviously, there has been quite a bit of emphasis on the biological clock. More recently, people uh, rediscover the enormous reduction in slow-wave sleep and slow-wave activity that, of course, occurs around that particular uh, time point in in our uh, lives and and relate the delayed phase of sleep to the change in, in the sleep system and the change in the biological clock can indeed very well be secondary. Uh, and right. doesn't necessarily have to be primary.
1: Well, exactly, and I, and I think you know, I, I mean, I think that's one of the things that the, you know we, we're going to get out of uh, out of research like this is, is the whole idea is we can't be seduced by a phenotype because there are many different ways of getting to that kind of behavior. And and uh, you know some people just may be sleep deprived and they're impaired, but other people may just have a genotype which which makes them vulnerable to that. So I I think that's just a very very important finding, and I think it's it's critical in the area of sleep where, we, where we're first starting to understand individual differences. And then and, and and I guess the final question you know for me is, were you able to post hoc look at any differences in these folks in terms of things like accidents or or, or performance or sleep
2: times? The, well, we haven't followed these uh, individuals, uh, unfortunately, but what we have done, we uh, have done one other uh, study which is now uh, published in collaboration with uh, Pierre Macaire and Gilles van der Wallen in Liège, where we took an independent uh, sample. Uh, and in essence put those people through a very similar uh, protocol. Uh, But in this particular protocol, our primary outcome measure was uh, uh, fMRI-based. And and what we did in this sample is do an fMRI while they were um, engaged in in an executive task in the morning, do one in the evening, and then on another occasion do one in the uh, evening, sleep deprive them, and do one in the morning and uh, what what we actually found in and i think that that's for me fascinating and, and intriguing and also promising is actually that the, the dynamics of the brain responses uh, to just being awake during a normal day or being sleep deprived for one night uh, d- d- these dynamics were quite dramatically different between the two uh, genotypes. And, and the easiest way to describe it is that the non-vulnerable genotype, the four fours, didn't change during a normal day, so, that, so there were no changes in their brain responses, whereas in, in the in the five fives previously associated with being a morning type, in the evening we already saw some reductions in activation in, in a particular frontal uh, area, but then when we did sleep deprivation, the, the four fours, you know, were able to actually increase activity in areas that were already activated or recruit new areas to the task. Whereas in the five fives, the vulnerable genotype, we, we saw widespread deactivations, so reductions of activity in response to the executive task in, in, in frontal and, and parietal. Uh, regions, so it, it, it looks like uh, that this um, particular effect of the, the, the genotype, which we can observe at the level of behavior, which we can observe at the level of sleep physiology and, and sleep EEG, can also be observed at the uh, level of um, fMRI. So I think there's uh, a lot to be done to, to understand what, what this genotype is doing exactly.
1: Okay. Uh, now, have you looked at any genes which are proximal or
2: close to the PER3? No, we haven't done that. Um, the, some of the molecular uh, biologists, people here, like Simon Archer and Malcolm von Chans, are very much uh, interested uh, in this. But so far, uh, we have no indication that the phenotype we observe is, is not related to this particular polymorphism itself.
1: Dick John, thank you for the description of this fascinating and in my mind, a uh, clinically important study, and uh, why don't we stop here and, and, and give our uh, callers an opportunity to ask questions. While we are waiting for the audience to ask questions, I'd like to uh, let our audience know that there are additional online resources at www.neurosciencecme.com. At the conclusion of this question and answer session, you'll automatically be, you'll automatically be redirected to this site. I encourage you to take advantage of this evidence-based resource. Okay, Turkhan, if you're ready, we'll take some of the audience questions. Sure. Okay, so here's a quick question. How do you suggest, you know, it's very clearly that, you know, like I said, there's clear clinical implications and all the questions we're getting here are just sort of clearly addressing that. So how do you suggest that we identify these mourning types? Genetic testing seems at this point unreasonable. And definitely not reimbursable. This is from Doctor Trot. So, how do you, rec- you know, is there a way of getting at this at this point with some kind of questions or questionnaire or anything like that that you could recommend?
2: Well, there is, of course, the the Horn-Osberg questionnaire, which was uh, developed to identify people uh, who prefer to do their waking activities early in the day and and um, for the morning types and for the evening types to do them uh, late. And and that questionnaire. Is uh, relatively simple, and and we use that. There are a number of other uh, questionnaires which ask simple questions uh, about what time do you prefer to wake up, uh, etc. Whether all of these questionnaires will identify people who are vulnerable to the um, effects of sleep loss, uh, we don't know. And in in the Horn Osberg the the interesting thing is that in the horn osberg questionnaire there isn't really an item relating to um how vulnerable are you to the effects of um sleep loss and it, and it may be uh, that one could develop questionnaires that are more predictive but we haven't uh, gone into that particular uh, area at all
1: so actually so so the one you the, the best one right now would be the Horn.
2: the horn osberg
1: yeah can you spell the that horn-
2: for so it's H O R N E this is Jim Horn, actually, right. and and the second author is Ostberg, O S T, B E R G, yeah. uh, and um, that paper and and that scale has been around for a uh, for a long time. Absolutely, and 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 and, and you can find right. it. Right, you can Google
1: YouTube. that. If you do Google that, you'll, you'll be able to get the questionnaire. So that's great. Absolutely, thank you. Yes. Okay, now uh, question. Next question is from Dr. Rodriguez. So the five fives have the higher upward sleep scale, but what can I do about this in practice? What if a patient is a five five and a shift worker? Can I, do you think it's justifiable to tell them to stop working or, or to tell the employee to shift them to another shift? How, you know and, and, and the follow-up question to that is, if you can't do that. Do you have any strong recommendations on how to help this patient in the context of the shift work?
2: Sure, I think that's a very good uh, question, and it's unreasonable to expect people to simply give up their shift work job because there may be no day jobs uh, available. Uh, So you need to come up with uh, strategies to kind of ameliorate these effects uh, of that vulnerability. And, And what we're currently doing is looking into, for example, the effects of sleep extension prior to going on a extended period of wakefulness, which includes the night, on um, performance and sleepiness in these two genotypes. And, and the general um, idea is that staying awake at night is difficult, it may be more difficult if you are of a particular uh, genotype, but it's certainly true that if, in addition, you are sleep deprived, it becomes even more difficult. Um, and if you can reduce your sleep pressure prior to going on the night shift uh, that may actually um help.
1: Okay, so actually there's a question directly right at that so I'll, I'll follow up with that question although it's out of order. And and so so if you have somebody who's on a night shift, you know, do you have a sleep schedule so, so are you recommending that they have a biphasic schedule so that they sleep when they get home and then the
2: second- one of the one of the options is indeed to take a, a an extended nap prior to going on the, uh, the night shift. And, and some shift workers actually may do the night shift, then stay up uh, for several hours and, and not go to sleep until later in the day so that they sleep closer to the start of the night shift.
1: Okay. Um, you know, as we, Before we go to more email questions, operator, do we have any questions on the phone?
3: Ian, I'd just like to remind our participants that if they do have an audio question, simply press star and one to queue up.
1: And at the present time, we don't have any of those.
3: No, sir, not this time.
1: Great. So let let's go on with our email questions. Um, you know, now, now, very clearly, um, the the other. I'm trying to get to the questions. Okay, here we are. Okay, so so for example, this decrease in the upward, you know, this increased up in, in 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 these individuals suggests that not only are these people impaired, but but they're conscious of that. And 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 is that generally true in in this population?
2: Well, this uh, difference in the abworth we ob- observed in uh, one study, which was a study we published in, in the Journal of Neuroscience, and, and we will have to wait and see uh, how general that particular finding is. But if that um, holds, uh, then indeed there would be a link between that uh, genotype and the self-assessment of daytime sleepiness in terms of the likelihood of falling asleep in various situations and, and in, in a way that makes uh, sense.
1: Oh, an excellent question here from, from, from uh, Dr. Foster. You know, you, t- you sort of challenge these people with sleep deprivation. You, know, you saw a difference in, sl- in reaction. He says, have you any information regarding the interaction, of, of, you know, the response of these people to things like sedating drugs? By, you know, in other words, what happens if other what happens you have other sedating challenges like sleep apnea? Do they respond differently, or or if you have you know use of opioids or other sedating drugs?
2: We have no information on that, but but that's certainly a, a very interesting area uh, to go into, and and it may indeed uh, be that certain genotypes are yeah. you know much more responsive to certain pharmacological manipulations. Yeah,
1: I think that's a fascinating question because the question becomes: Is it? you know, a circadian challenge or any challenge which increases sleepiness, you know, apnea, narcolepsy, any of that, is actually very interesting. Uh, I have a question here from Dr. Gildwell. Uh, I came in late, so I may have, so I have, whoops, so this may have been answered. Is there a test for the PER3 genotype that is available to clinicians in a general practice? And the answer at this point is no, right? No, no
2: un- unless you want to. Take a buckle swap and send out your samples right. for genotyping. Right, yeah. you,
1: can, you can get something genotyped. It's it's, uh, it's doable, but I'm not sure it's reimbursable or you know what you can do with that information. Correct. But but yeah, per three genes are, are looked at quite a bit in research. It's not not an uncommon one. You know, the, which another question is 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 you know you discussed this is an email question. You look you discussed a per three gene. Have you looked at any of the other circadian genes which have been identified?
2: Well, for for a number of genes, uh, polymorphisms or mutations have been associated with, uh, for example, changes in in sleep timing and and, and there is the famous example of the uh, PERT-2 gene and a mutation in the PER2 gene, which associates with advanced sleep-wake disorder in certain families. And and, and there are associations between polymorphisms in the the clock gene, CLOCK, uh, as as well as other polymorphisms in PER2 that have been associated with changes in sleep timing. But in none of these studies have people looked at sleep physiology in any detail, detail. And in none of these studies, people look at the interaction between those polymorphisms and for example the effects of sleep deprivation and in our view that's the important thing to do but it's undoubtedly true that there will be many genes that contribute to this vulnerability to the effects of sleep loss and to this vulnerability as it is expressed in particular in the early morning and that's of course Quite essential in in our data set that the largest effects of this particular genotype in in, in terms of the response to sleep deprivation are observed in the early morning hours
1: okay uh, you know people are very interested in obviously being trying to identify these folks so so here's another question uh which follows that same type of approach you know you you mentioned the 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 horn Oxburg scale you know which is morning and this, evening, this ha- have you have any experience or can you make any recommendation about the use of, uh, of sleep diaries in people to try to identify people who might be you know morning or evening types in terms of sleeping in on weekends or anything like that?
2: Well the um, one thing that um, Malcolm von Schanz and Jason Ellis uh, did in a an, uh, detailed analysis of, of the existing data set was to see which of the questions on the horn osberg scale uh was most predictive of the genotype and and what came out of uh, that analysis uh, was actually uh, that whether or not you you need to use an alarm clock was a very good predictor of, was a reasonable predictor of a uh, genotype in the sense that if you didn't have to use an alarm clock, uh, you you were more likely to be a five-five, uh, but, but that was a post hoc analysis of a larger data set. So how that holds up, I I do not know, and and it it may very well be, uh, you know, that if you are a simple short sleeper, um, and um, you don't use an alarm clock, that certainly doesn't imply that, and you are a five-five, and and it will be very difficult for you to stay awake um, during the night. So it it it's at the moment uh, difficult to say how to identify these people other than the way we did it
1: okay here's another question uh you know this is related to the question before they ask you you know they're asking you to sort of speculate because there's a lot of clinical implications of your data so the question before was what about you know things which make you sleepy You're like you know, they asked about opioids and, and, and uh, sleep apnea and, and, you know, maybe sedative hypnotic drugs. The the, you know, the the next question is is the converse of that. and sort of says, you know, the drugs indicated to you sleepiness are things like modafinil, armadafinil, and uh, some of the traditional dopaminergic stimulants. But what would be your prediction? Would there be genetic differences in, in terms of the 5-5, in, in terms of the PER-3 phenotypes as to response to wake-enhancing medications?
2: Oh, there is no uh, reason to assume that there there wouldn't be differences in the uh, response, and, and of course it, it's also uh, true that, that people who uh, will um, find it very difficult to stay awake uh, during the night, such as the 5 fives, that that they um, may feel a greater need to to use. Wake-promoting um, compounds, and this may very well, the the effectiveness or the efficacy of which may very well uh, interact with genotype. But currently, we have no uh, data for that. But that's certainly an an area of uh, research that that will happen, no doubt about that.
1: Okay, here's um, another great question. Uh, do you have any information or any hypotheses about the relationship? with seasonal affective disorders, you know, people who tend to be hypersomnolent, and the PER3 genotypes? Uh,
2: currently, we have no real evidence uh, for that. There have been a few studies trying to associate the, the PER3 polymorphism with a number of um, mood disorders, and in some studies there are uh, some suggestions that indeed there, there may be a... Um, an association, but we haven't specifically looked at um, seasonal affective uh, disorders.
1: Okay. Uh, next question. Uh, you know, d- d- does the PER3 gene, and, and I think you've answered this, but it would be nice to get a clarification. Repetition. Have anything to do with why young people tend to be night owls and older people tend to be morning people? So, in other words, you know, the classical phase delay in adolescence and phase advance in the aging. Does this have to do with the mutation of this gene? I mean, does that change across the lifespan?
2: Well, obviously, your uh, genotype th- doesn't change across the lifespan, uh, and and we know that across the lifespan there are major changes in the preferred timing of sleep, and, and the adolescents uh, obviously like to go to bed late and, and wake up um, late. Um, so even though we don't expect there to be changes in the genotype across the lifespan, it may nevertheless be... Um, that uh, young people with the who are homozygous for the short repeats, so the four fours, um, may be more likely to become extremely delayed uh, during that time in their life compared to the five fives, and that certainly be a, an interesting um, study. We have some evidence in an analysis that the effects of the genotype are more pronounced in uh, younger people compared to um, older people. And there may be two reasons for that. Uh, one reason is that the changes in, in in sleep need or homeostatic sleep pressure certainly uh, appear to go down with uh, age. And, and, and the idea is that when you are younger, uh, the interaction between genotype and the sleep system are uh, clearer. And, and the other interpretation for those effects of genotype to be most clearly observed in, in younger people is that, of course, we... Uh, kind of accumulate a, a lot of experience and environmental influences uh, on our uh, physiology and, and the overall contribution of, of your genetic makeup to your phenotype may become smaller as you grow older.
1: Okay, uh, here's another question. It's a follow-up to something you, you, answer, you used as an answer to one of the previous questions. And that is, uh, it has it, it been demonstrated that, that people in adolescence have a, a clear phase delay when they hit adolescence, and you mentioned that there's some relationship with that, with with homeostatic drive in terms of slow-wave sleep. So what is the, the, you know, and everybody sort of thinks of slow-wave sleep in the the elderly declining. What is the change in slow-wave sleep in adolescence?
2: Uh Well, well, that's a good point. Uh, It's uh, it's clear that with adolescent slow-wave sleep and and slow-wave activity, Uh, goes down actually quite uh, dramatically. And at the same time, uh, these people have this delayed uh, phenotype. Uh, And and the interpretation is that, well, you know, your your, uh, sleep pressure doesn't really build up, so it is 11 or or midnight, and and there's no homeostatic reason to go to sleep, so you you can stay up a little bit uh, later. And the physiology clearly shows um, that there is this change uh in in slow wave sleep uh whether that's really driving the changes in the timing is uh more difficult to uh, answer now in contrast if you go to the older people who of course wake up uh earlier and uh, and and they certainly do there is a decline in uh in slow wave sleep there as well so despite the fact that you have opposite opposite changes in um, sleep timing, the, the changes in, in slow wave sleep are going in the same direction. So obviously, the same explanation cannot work in in both uh, age groups, and and this is something that we will need to find a good explanation for.
1: You know, here's here's another question which I think is sort of interesting. It says, uh, you know, in evaluating my shift workers, I've always found that that. I've always attributed, I'm sorry, their daytime, their nighttime sleepiness to their inability to sleep during the day. Does this identification of this genotype suggest that that the sleepiness or the impairment during the night shift in these individuals may not be related to their daytime sleep?
2: Uh, I think that that's that's a good point. And traditionally, indeed, we we say that the nighttime problems are related to not being able to sleep during the day. Now, I think that the inability to, to sleep well during the day is, is certainly a a contributing uh, factor. Uh, but these data and, and other data also show that it's the time of day, so the nighttime, uh, that has this independent contribution, independent of those sleep problems uh, during the day.
1: So even if you gave somebody... You know, eight, nine, ten hours of continuous sleep pharmacologically by day, they still would be impaired two to three, four in the morning.
2: Uh, absolutely. Of course, sleeping well during the day w- will help to some right. extent, but there is still this uh, very strong effect of time of night uh, on, on your sleepiness and, and your performance. And
1: this would be dramatically more, much more pronounced in these five fives
2: yes and and now the 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 big question is to what extent can you reduce these effects of genotype during the night by you know improving sleep to uh, a, a great extent or doesn't that help at all and, and and these are empirical questions that need to be answered okay
1: um this is another person just saying thank you that that you know he he's going to recommend this article to his uh Residents Journal Club. <laughs> so that, I think that's just a compliment of the great paper. Um Good. Going through the question. Do we do we have any questions on the phone yet, operator?
3: Yes, sir. I'm actually showing us with uh two questions queued up. Okay, Our well first don't you, one. Go ahead. Hmm, comes to us from the side of uh Dr. David Moskowitz. Go ahead, please. Your line is open. Oh, good a good afternoon. The good afternoon. Ideas that I have been listening to uh make me think about a particular situation that i used to be in i'm getting old now combat how do you think this refer this applies to what happens to soldiers in combat and their decreased efficiency at night
2: well i certainly think that the the effects of the biological clock uh, will also apply to uh, soldiers and and even uh, during uh, combat and which of course is a very um stressful um, um situation uh, but it may uh, indeed be that um, some soldiers cope better with um the nighttime and and having to uh, operate and fight during the nighttime than others and and that may have a a, a a genetic basis, and this particular gene may be one of the genes contributing to those individual differences also in that situation. But I would like to to emphasize that what we have currently are uh, laboratory studies, uh, and these laboratory studies indicate that there are individual differences and the contribution of a particular gene, and we now need to go out there and, and see... Uh, how important and what the relative contribution of this gene is to differences as observed while we are out there, be it a night shift worker or in the combat situation.
1: Okay. And we have another question on the phone?
3: Yes, sir. Our next question comes to us from Sandy Kaslow. Go ahead, please. Your line is open. Hi. Uh, My name is Sandy Kaslow. Previously, I had slept in two blocks of sleep. Um, what do you suggest as a way of bringing the sleep
2: together? Well, whether or not you want to bring the, the sleep together, I, I guess depends a little bit on um, how, how you cope with your uh, demands in, in terms of having to be awake at a certain time um, of day. It, it may be that under certain circumstances, sleeping in, in two blocks can be an efficient way to uh, to deal with sleep timing um problems um, if if you feel that it's going to be better for you to sleep in uh, one block and if you are uh, have the opportunity to sleep during the night then I recommend trying to sleep only during the night but if you are a night shift worker obviously that may be much more uh, difficult
3: if you extend the time that you go to sleep <clears throat> so that you have a an opportunity to put the two blocks together how would you do that? Would you I'm, just I'm, go to sleep at 3 or 4 in the morning and then you get up at 12 and you're functioning much better?
2: That w- that would be one approach, and, and, but you'll have to see how that works for you.
3: Have they ever used electricity as a way of bringing the um, blocks together so you have a more uh, compact sleep?
2: In in terms uh, of electric uh, light, Light exposures can be used and light regimes can be used to consolidate um, wakefulness uh, and and, and maybe sleep, (laughs) but there is not that much uh, specific research to answer that particular question.
3: Okay. You mean regarding electricity? Yeah. So they haven't done any research on the use of electricity?
2: No, other than
1: just, you know, moving circadian clocks with light, there's no other work on electricity. Let me move on. Here's another question. Um, Thank you. How do you differentiate morning types and phase advanced sleep disorder?
2: <laughs> that's the uh, that's a good question. Um, it may very well be that um, you know phase advanced sleep disorder is the extreme of the distribution we observe in in the population. Uh, and, and of course, if you're going to sleep at you know. or 10 o'clock, you may still feel that's uh, acceptable and and maybe even 9.30 or 9, but if you feel the urge to go to sleep at at 7 o'clock at night or maybe even 6.30, uh, then this may really become a a big problem for your um, social life, etc. Currently, we have no reason to assume um, that these two phenomena have... Fundamentally different right. underlying mechanisms and and I think that's that's one of the um interesting aspects of studying variation in the normal population right. or variation in the population it It may lead us to discover some of the mechanisms that underlie some of these disorders
1: yeah i you see, I think you know the 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 difference clinically always is you know whether it's phase advance or phase delays. how do you differentiate somebody who is biologically or genetically? You know, a morning or an evening or a phase advance or a phase delay versus somebody who is that sociologically or or culturally. You know, how do you know if, if you have a 20-year-old or an 18-year-old who has a biological phase delay or or has a cultural phase delay? Life is just much better for them that way. You know, so how do you know? Whether, you know, I always tell our fellows. You know, and I'm curious to see what you think of this. Whether I've been telling them the wrong thing for the last 10 years. And and, and I always sort of tell them that one, you want to look at two things. One, what is the cost of the phase delay? If there's not much cost to the phase delay, you know, you're not getting, you're not you're losing your job, you're, you know, you're just taking later classes. It's more likely to be, you know, a, a behavioral thing. And the other thing I always ask them to look at is how much effort have they made to change it? You know, people who've worked very, very hard to, to, to advance their sleep and can't do it are much more likely to be a circadian
2: sure and and i th- i think that the you know measuring the the, the consequences of of that particular uh, phenotype is is a first step and for some people it it may be possible to be a delayed sleep phase syndrome because of you know job requirements whereas in, in other people it may become a a big problem and these people will find it very difficult to fall asleep on time in the evening, but nevertheless, they need to get up on time to go to the office and, as a consequence, be um, sleep-deprived. One way to to, to find out a little bit more about some of the underlying mechanisms is, of course, studying uh, those individuals under controlled laboratory conditions. And if you find clear physiological um, variables that clearly... Are different from you know the, the the normal range in in a population. Then that then that may be a good argument to say that yes, there must be some um, biology um, there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So here's another question, which I think is interesting. which is you know this is you know it's very complementary, Journal Club. You know, let's take an extreme situation. Suppose you have somebody who actually has had a string of car accidents. And you suspect they are five five. Do you think at that point it pays to get a genetic evaluation?
2: Well, we certainly it aren't justify the uh, intervention. We certainly aren't uh, there yet. Um, but of course, it, it, it's true that if, if you now have um, sleep apnea uh, and, and you are in, um, you have been involved in a number of car accidents related to falling asleep at the uh, wheel, and then, then, then certainly in, in, in some countries. Uh, your driving license can be uh, taken away. Uh, So that's a very clear um, intervention. But of course, what you would like to do is say that, okay, you are very sleepy at night. Um, We we looked at your genotype, and and, and yes, you you have this particular genotype. But now uh, we understand the mechanisms through which this genotype acts in in the following way, And, and, and we can tell you that if you have to be awake at night Uh, the best way to cope with it is make sure that, you know, in the afternoon before or in the evening before you go on that ship you have slept at least so many hours, okay, in addition to your normal nocturnal sleep. And and this will help you to some extent cope with the night and and your genotype. And that may be a way uh, to go.
1: Okay, so here's here's somebody who's obviously read your CV because they're tying together multiple areas of your prolific research. Is there any relationship between five fives or per threes and the response to serotonin? (laughs) Melatonin. I'm sorry, melatonin and or serotonin?
2: No, no, we 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 uh, we don't know, uh, and that's certainly going to be an area of uh, interest. We we have some uh, data now which we presented at the um, sleep meeting this uh, summer in uh, Seattle. Uh, that the effects of light um, on alertness and and maybe difference in the five fives and the four fours. So we're starting to work our way through the possible mechanisms, and, and hopefully we will come up with some uh, some answers in the near future.
1: Has anybody identified the five fives, four fours in in in, in rodents? Uh,
2: well, the, one of the interesting things about this particular uh, variable number tandem repeat. Uh, polymorphism is that it emerged in the primates and is oh, not no? present okay. in, in. So it, and that's actually one of the reasons we became interested in it because it's a primate-specific polymorphism, and uh, we may think that you know it could be related to the more huh. consolidated consolidated sleep-wake cycles in, uh, in humans, primates, primates and right. uh, and and also uh, the primates that. Uh, Malcolm von Schalmes and others have looked at uh, we're all diurnal primates and of course the, the most of the rodents we study are right. uh, nocturnal but th- of course now the question is you know what's going to happen if you introduce this particular polymorphism in animal models and and, and that's uh, stuff we're working on
1: okay so um, I think we are just about out of time and, and I apologize there's a, there's an incredible list of questions and 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 actually a lot of compliments for the paper. So, so you know I thank you. I, you know I want to thank uh, Dr. Dyke, Dyke and, and, and Dr. John. You, you know it's just been a tremendous pleasure for me. So I want to thank Dr. Dyke for joining us today and especially for helping us translate this latest evidence into improvements in the practice of sleep medicine and you know just practice of of medicine generally. I want to thank our audience for joining us today, and if you're not able to get your question answered, please send an email to questions at cmeoutfitters.com. Dr. Dyke and I will answer the questions online over the next few weeks and post the responses at www.neurosciencecme.com slash journal club. I'm Dr. Roth, and I want to take this opportunity to thank you for joining us today. And I hope you will be able to incorporate the the, the information provided to us by Dr. Dirk Jan Dyke into your clinical practice, and you'll be able to join us for future journal clubs. Again, have a great day.